this new series called Nehemiah, and, and we're very excited about what God's doing. We feel like God's brought us to this new project, this new vision called the Katali Project, and sort of as we go through Nehemiah, we look at what God has stirred up in his life and, and how it is that, that God used Nehemiah and, and developed this ache in his heart and then a vision and then action out of that ache, and we just want to be faithful to what God's doing even in our own midst as he's given us a vision and a call, etc. So that's the, the deal. If you missed last week, please go back online and check it out because we talked about how God stirred Nehemiah's heart and developed this ache within it, this aching heart for the city of Jerusalem. It's where Nehemiah's uh, people had come from. They had been taken from uh, Judah, from Jerusalem. They'd been taken away into captivity. Nehemiah's actually serving in the court of the king, King Artaxerxes. And we find out at the, the very last verse of chapter one that he is the cupbearer to the king. Now, a cupbearer to the king in the ancient world, that was actually a, a fairly um, privileged position. It had a lot of esteem built into it because, I mean, as you might imagine, the cupbearer would be in charge of the wine cellar of, of the royalty. So, so in charge of selecting all of the wines and finding the, the best grapes and, and the best, you know, blends. And, and I, I don't know how that works, but, but they'd be in charge of all of that. And when it comes to serving the king, so during the banquets or during the meals or whenever the king or queen would desire, uh, the cupbearer would be responsible for bringing that wine into the palace, etc. There was an additional element to being the cupbearer, and that was that in the ancient world, often the royalty would be the target of assassination attempts. And often how that would happen is that, that the assassin would poison the wine. And so the cupbearer, in addition to selecting the fine wine and serving the wine to royalty, would also need to taste the wine in advance of serving it to the king. And if there was poison in it, the cupbearer would know pretty quick. Kind of like that canary in the, the mine shaft type of a deal. And, and so what's interesting is to be a cupbearer meant that you were, you know, 50% connoisseur and 50% bodyguard. And because of that, there was trust that developed between the king and his cupbearer. And certainly that would have been true between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, that there was great trust. And as you know, trust goes both ways. It goes back and forth. What is interesting is sometimes no matter how much you trust another person, no matter how much there's trust in the, the situation, that even then it can go poorly from time to time. We actually found this video and uh, talks about a trust fall. Everyone seems to be, you know, th th there's enough strength here. Th th nobody seems to be overly intoxicated here. Uh, but even in this situation, bad things can happen. There was really no point to that video. I just, I just thought it was hilarious. To... So what we want to do is we want to take a look at how this trust happened in Nehemiah's role and in his relationship with the king and how God birthed this ache in his heart and how this ache stirred into action. So let's start in verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're kind of going to go through the chapter here. If you have your Bibles, please open them up. Uh, I know the verses are on your notes. They'll be on the screen behind me as well. 
Nehemiah says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request." All right, so let's jump in here. We see that Nehemiah had this ache in his heart, and God stirred that ache for a far-reaching vision for the city of Jerusalem. And what you need to know is that Nehemiah was currently serving the king in Susa, the, the Persian capital, which was roughly 800 miles from Jerusalem. So a visit to Jerusalem, 800 miles one way, 1,600 miles round trip, traveling at approximately eight miles an hour on donkey or camel would end up in roughly being a, a really, really big trip. I actually don't want to do the math for you. I, I can't. I understood there would be no math. That's why I went into ministry. The, the, the thing, though, that you see is that it's this vision a far-reaching vision for the city of Jerusalem and for, for the, the place where Nehemiah's people come from, right? The Israelites. Now, even though there was a great amount of trust between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, Nehemiah couldn't just go into the Oval Office and say, hey, give me a transfer to Jerusalem. And there are a few reasons for that. Number one is Artaxerxes is not a God follower. Number two, Artaxerxes did not especially have a soft heart for the plight of the Israelites. He had been a part of all that. The Babylonians were the ones that, that uh, sacked Jerusalem 140 years previous. But then Artaxerxes now had sort of taken over power in the region. He did not want Jerusalem to be the military might and power that it had used to be. And so he was not at all interested in having this region built up in terms of strength or military power, etc., so it's interesting that Nehemiah knew that the king had to get on board with this vision, and yet he was afraid that the king would not get on board with this vision. And I want you to hear this very clearly. There would be no progress if the king didn't move his position. It would not have gone forward. This, this whole thing, like the book would stop here, chapter 1 and 2, and then end. Like there would be no more story if the king's heart did not move. And the reason why I bring this up is because this is where it gets relevant to where you and I are. Some of us, you, you, you serve in a place where your supervisor, there, there's, there's a toughness there, a hardness of heart. 
Some of you, you, you are in a situation where you feel like you've come against the same brick wall again and again and again. You don't know what to do. Maybe it's a relationship with a parent. Maybe it's a relationship with a child. Maybe it's a relationship with a spouse. Maybe it is like that supervisor, that boss in your work, and, and you feel like you've come up against it again and again and again. What do you do? The, the idea is you do the same thing that Nehemiah did. You start with prayer. Prayer is always step one in terms of accomplishing the vision that God gives to us. And here's the encouragement. This is from Proverbs 21.1. It says, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. So if the king's heart is, is guided by the hand of God, then we need to make sure that we're diligent in praying for these people, lifting them up, lifting their hearts to the Lord, because God can guide hearts. God can change minds. This is a part of what it is that God does. And if you're filling in your blanks, that is the first truth that we see in this passage, that God is in the business of changing hearts. Amen. This is what God does. This, this is absolutely the territory that God inhabits. And so if you find yourself in a situation where, where you feel like it's hopeless, where no progress can be made unless that heart gets changed, then please be encouraged and lift that heart to the Lord again and again. Do not get frustrated. Do, do not give up. Continue to go to the Lord in prayer, lifting that person to the Lord in prayer. And this is true for a supervisor. Again, it's true for relationships like parents or children or a spouse. I would also say, though, that this is true for kings and for the leaders and governance over us. It's true for prime ministers and presidents. That's why the Bible encourages us to pray for those in positions of power or authority. Why? Because God can direct their hearts. Hudson Taylor says this, It is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. So we need to be diligent in praying Right, praying. So in our workplaces, we need to lift up our coworkers. We need to lift up our supervisors. When we're in our classrooms, when we're in, you know, in our community, whoever it is that we're interacting with and serving with, let's make sure we lift them up to the Lord. And Nehemiah did not advertise that he was doing this, by the way. And so I don't recommend that you advertise this either. Like in your workspace, don't put up a poster in your say, I pray for heathens. Oh, you're number one, you know, right here. Like that, that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about making sure that you're diligent and you're lifting these folks up to the Lord. And, and Nehemiah had been doing this for months, right? He had, been, he had been lifting up the king. He'd been lifting up this vision and prayer for months. And, and it, it's an encouragement, rather, to not lose heart, to remain steadfast, to persevere through this. I know we want immediate results all the time. But, but let's use Nehemiah as a model here, right? And it brings us to tr truth number two. Praying and waiting are a part of the same activity. That as we pray, as we lift uh, hearts up to the Lord and we wait upon God, know that that is a part of the same activity. Both of these are action verbs. And so we wait for an opportunity. We wait for God to open a door. We wait for, for there to be a movement. And at the same time that we're waiting, we're praying that God is at work behind the scenes. In Nehemiah's life, it didn't happen in month one. It didn't happen in month two, month three. Now month four is almost past, right? We know this because of the timeline between chapter one and chapter two. And he just continued to pray. He continued to lift the situation up to the Lord. 
Now, there is the classic American prayer, which is, Lord, please make me patient and make me patient now, right? And that's typically how we approach the Lord. We want God to bring the answer yesterday. And, uh, and, and the challenge really is, well, why doesn't God answer our prayers immediately? Why is it that sometimes it takes a while for him to move and to answer our prayers? And, and I think that part of the answer for that is that he doesn't give us what we want because we don't really know what we want. And even if we think we know what we want, so often that thing that we want is not really what we need. Well, my kids, my, I got three kids, and my wife and I, just early on, we made a commitment that whatever sports they wanted to go into, that we would be happy as their parents to provide whatever they need in order to enjoy those sports. So we'd buy all of the gear, we'd buy, you know, all of the participation fees, uh, all the uniform, or as my youngest son calls them, the costumes. Uh, we, would, we would just do all of that, right? No problem. Uh, any, any of the sports my kids wanted to play. But anytime my kid says that they were interested in a new sport, I would always probe to see if they were really interested in that sport, right? It, it just, it's such a commitment. So it wouldn't just be if they mentioned it once, I would rush out and do all the entry fees and buy all the gear. It would be more like if they mentioned it once, well, then I'd have a follow-up conversation. I'd wait another week to see if they brought it up again. Is this really near and dear to their heart? If they mention it again and they talk about it again and they say, hey, we need to have a conversation, they bring mom and I into the same conversation and they're really committed, well, then I'm willing to go ahead and, and pay the, the fee and get all the gear, etc. And I just want to know, are they going to follow through? Are they going to be committed in this thing? Is this thing really what it is that they feel like they want to go through in this next season? Because it's expensive. I'll, I'll buy you all the gear for lacrosse or pole vaulting or yacht racing. Or, but, but, but I need to know, right? Like, is this a thing that you're going to go into and, and, and through? Or is this just you know, drop it in a, in a day? And, and God's the same way. He wants to know where we are. Where are our hearts? Like, is this something that's really near and dear to us? And, and so we lift up hearts to the Lord, and we pray about vision to the Lord. And then there's a discernment piece in this, right? We need to sense when God wants us to make a move. We need to sense how God wants us to make a move. We need to sense what God wants us to do as a next step. Right? And so that praying and that waiting, it develops a discernment in our hearts. And here Nehemiah was, for months he had been praying and he had been diligent and waiting on the Lord. And, and then he gets to this place, it seems, where he just, he just can't stay in the situation any longer. And this is the day that he appears before the king and his face is downcast. He's sad in front of the king. This is his, his moment of action. And, and I would say to you, we don't know how courageous Nehemiah was in that moment. There's just no way in our, our cultural context that we can understand how much bravery it took for Nehemiah to be sad in the presence of the king. And I'll tell you why. Because the king in, in, these, you know, in the ancient world... The king could order everything in their own universe. And what they wanted to make sure of is that they didn't have anybody bumming them out. Right? Nobody harshened their vibe. And so you show up and you're bummed out in front of the king. 
He's free to execute you, which turns out to be far bigger of a bummer than that other thing you were bummed out about. And so it's kind of like when I was growing up, my mom, yeah, she was raising her three kiddos. I mean, my, my parents were together, but they were raising the three kids. My mom would say this, not my dad, my mom would say uh, when she, we'd be whining about something, she'd go, I'm going to give you something to cry about. And, and that would be the heart of the king, right? That if you showed up and you're sad in front of the king, they, oh, I'll give you something to cry about. Off with his head. And so Nehemiah, he has, he has this incredible amount of courage to come and to be downcast in front of the king. And remember, it's not a king who's a God follower. It's not a king who has a heart for Jerusalem or for the Israelites. And so the king says, why are you sad? And Nehemiah, and again, this is the discernment. He answers, he says, it's because the city where my fathers are buried, the city of my ancestors, the city of my lineage and my heritage, that city is in ruins. And he uses that phrase because he knows that to the heart of a king, your lineage is important. And the fathers that you've come from, they, they are very important. In fact, in, in some cultures, your forefathers are much more important than your grandsons. It's where you've come from that's the thing. And so Nehemiah is speaking now to the heart of a king. And the king is, is soft on this issue. The king is, has been kind of moldable. And, and the prayers of Nehemiah have been answered because the king says, okay, I get it. Well, what do you want? And Nehemiah says a quick prayer. He shoots up a quick prayer, probably for courage, probably that he has the courage to go ahead and follow through with the thing that he had been planning for months. And, and Nehemiah says, well, actually, here's what I would need. I, I need some letters that show that I could have safe passage there, maybe some protection along the way. I, I also need uh, some access to you know, your storehouses, I need to be able to use timber that you would provide for the gates and for parts of the wall and the temple and, and even for the house that I would need to stay in while I'm there. And, 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 and I would need you just to be behind this whole thing. And, and the king is ready to go there. Okay, when Nehemiah answers, it becomes very clear that he has prayed through and thought through this vision again and again and again. And it brings us to the next truth. Truth number three, faith is not a substitute for a plan. Faith is not a substitute for a plan. And let me say the reverse is also true. A plan is not a substitute for faith. Nehemiah had both. He had both. And, and he had great faith in the Lord for the Lord to provide, for the Lord to open the opportunity. And he had a great plan that God had allowed to develop within him through God's wisdom and God's discernment. Proverbs 16, 9 says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. So both are important, right? And we need to be, uh, hold our plans kind of loosely up to the Lord because he's the one who's going to determine our plans, but both are required. It takes great faith to risk this kind of behavior before the Lord. Nehemiah takes that step of faith. He makes that ask. He takes that action. And then he says, and God's gracious hand was on me. All right, let's jump in. We're going to start in verse 9. We're going to go through verse 18, see what happens next. He says, So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So he does have protection. 
When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. You might just want to circle those two names, Sanballat and Tobiah. They're going to come up again. And these are the chief opponents of progress in Jerusalem. They are specifically profiting on the fact that Jerusalem is in shambles. And so when Nehemiah comes to rebuild it, they come against him again and again and again. They are the opposition. And we're going to see what happens as this story unfolds. I went to Jerusalem, he says, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, or I went, I went up the valley gate. Excuse me. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So God's gracious hand has guided Nehemiah from Susa to Jerusalem, from an ache in his heart to action. And what's beautiful about this passage is he gets there into Jerusalem and he doesn't broadcast everything. It's not this huge procession with, you know, trumpets and banners unfurled or anything. He, he slips out at night with just a few men. And, and he goes, he's on a horse and he's kind of surveying all of the, the you know, the scope of the problem seeing how big it is. He doesn't want to hear other people's opinion about this. He wants to see it himself. He wants God to reveal, okay, what is, what is the whole breadth and width of this project before us? He's going out with his horse. In fact, some of the rubble is, is so deep. Some of the, the pathways are just so filled with rubble and debris, he can't even take his horse through it. And, and, and so he comes back, and then he begins to cast his vision. And it's very clear and it's very matter of fact. It, it's, there's not a lot of frills to his vision casting. He simply identifies the problem that they are in. He talks about the right way to proceed. And he casts this compelling vision because it's what God had birthed in his heart. And this brings us to the next truth, if you're filling in the blanks. Truth number four is casting clear vision leads to unselfish commitment unselfish commitment. In other words, he, he, he was simply saying, look, this is going to take a lot of work, and we are all going to have to contribute to this thing, and it's going to require all of us to be diligent, to be faithful, to be sacrificial, but we will do it because it's the right thing to do. We will do it because these walls and gates have been in disarray for 141 years. We will do this because this is what brings glory and honor to God. It's all intrinsic internal motivation. 
There's no external motivation. There's no carrot on a stick. If you do this, you'll get a medal. If you do this, you'll get financial reward. It's just completely internal. It, it sort of reminds me of a speech that Winston Churchill gave in, it, right in the middle of World War II. And some of you have heard recordings of this. I just heard a recording this week of it. And it, it's called that, We Will Never Surrender, where he just uh, is on the radio broadcast, and he doesn't use much oration. You can actually barely understand what some of his words are because he has a huge cigar in his mouth at the time. And, and yet it's this incredible appeal to, to rightness and, and to the fact that, that there would be this unity. And I'll just read a portion of it to you. He says, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And there's no external motivation. And the speech is quite a bit longer than this. And he goes through every place that they're going to take the battle. We will meet the adversary here. We will meet them here. We will meet them in the seas. We will meet them in the airs, in the air. We will meet them uh, in the fields. We'll, we'll meet wherever they are. We will fight and we will fight and we will fight and we will never surrender. And the heart of the British Empire rose up and said, yes, yes, yes. And there was no external motivation. And there was not even great oration or emotionalism. It was just... This is what's right. This is what we will do. And I can just imagine Nehemiah saying that. You know, kind of that, that same thing. You've seen these walls. You know these gates. You know the disgrace that you live in. You've been living in it for 141 years. It is time to cast off our disgrace. It is time for us to rally together for the glory of our God. Let's rebuild the temple. Let's rebuild the walls. Let's rebuild the gates. Let's restore our dignity. Let's do this together. And the people arose with one voice and said, yes. And they put their hand to the good work. It's this beautiful picture of this clear vision casting, which leads to an unselfish commitment. Why? Because it's what's right. It's because this is what God has been stirring in our hearts to go after. Let's do this together. Yes, it will take sacrifice. Yes, it will take all of us working together. Yes, this will cost us something, but it's worth it because this is to the glory of God. Truth number five, the call of God will result in action. It will result in action. It will move us. It will start as an ache, but it will manifest itself in action. As we pray and as we plan and as we wait upon the Lord, this is the fruit of his vision, right? The call to action. Amen. And uniquely in this season, Overlake, we've been talking about the call to action that we feel like God is, is stirring within us is this vision for the Katali Project. And this is this vision for us to, to care for street kids and help street kids on the streets of Katali uh, get into homes. And we've got a plan and we've got partners. We sort of built this uh, prayer planning. It's, it's been in the works for years, but we are finally ready to pull the trigger on it. And I love how God works. Last week, if you were here, you know I shared this story about the very first time that God ever took me into Kenya. And this was right around the year 2000, and, and I had gone actually a couple of different times. So within about an 18-month period, I went back again, and we were working with street kids. So we were, we were you know, bringing street kids together. We were helping bathe them and clothe them and feed them and encourage them. And, but we just didn't have any place to take them from there. So th there was a lot of frustration as well. 
But while I was over there, somebody snapped a photo of me, and there were several of us working with street kids, and, and, and that photo made its way to a friend of mine, Pastor Dan Hamer and his wife Kathleen, and it was on their refrigerator for, for like years. In fact, he told me that it's, it's still on their refrigerator, which I think is just a little weird, but that's all right. And so, so, so this is, you know, my experience that God had brought me over and stirred my heart and this recognition that we've got to do something for street kids. Well, then this photo is on Dan and Kathleen's refrigerator. They had never been to Kenya, but finally God brought them to Kenya. And while they were there, they met two little boys, Derek and Reggie, Derek around age five, Reggie around age three. And how God orchestrated things in God's beautiful wisdom, the way God tells stories, it's amazing. But the Hamers end up adopting Derek and Reggie into their home as their sons. And, and so there's this beautiful story that happens out of that. And so when we talk about this Katali project, I hope you know that, that we're like intimately involved in, in this place and, and the plight of, of the street kids there. What I want to do is I want to introduce to you today Derek and let you hear a little bit of his story. So would you please welcome Derek as he comes and shares with us today. Good to see you, my man. Thank you for being here today. So, Derek, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Kind of start there. All right. Well, first, let me start by saying that I am very thankful and um, appreciative <laughs> of Overlake to take part in the Katali Project. And the reason is, is because that's my story. Um, I was once that little boy living on the streets of Katali, Kenya. Right. And so for me, I'm 19 years old. Um, I live in Woodenville, and I'm actually an, in, an intern here for a middle school ministry, which by the way, that means twice a week, some of you guys entrust me with your children. <laughs> I uh, go to Shoreline Community College, and I work at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> 13 years ago, I was adopted from Katali, Kenya and moved with my family when I was six years old. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about your childhood, your early childhood, and what yeah. that scenario was like? Yeah, early childhood. So I had a mother who was rarely around. Um, she had kind of spent time on the streets herself, and so um, she was 14 when she gave birth to me. Um, on the streets, she kind of had allowed glue to kind of consume her life, and so she ended up being really abusive to me and my younger brother. And because of that, I decided, you know what? I need to get away from her. And so I escaped the streets. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? The streets can be better off. I mean, I'm not gonna be neglected and I'm not gonna be in pain. But unfortunately, I found out that the streets, they were just the same as back home. I had no food, I was in pain, and I didn't have anyone caring for me. I didn't have a family who could kind of meet my needs. Right, right. Could you give us a little description of uh, what was life on the streets like? What, what was sort of a normal experience being on the streets? Yeah, so a typical day for me consisted of waking up really early. Um, I generally slept in front of a store or a business and um, the idea was you had to wake up early because if you weren't up by the time the shopkeepers or the store owners came, they'd beat you or they'd call in the police and they'd beat you. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of knew, hey, I need to get up. 
Um, then from there, I'd kind of spend the rest of the day looking for food and right. look through the trash. I'd beg. I um, even took up small jobs, um, selling charcoal or um, offering people if I could carry their bags for them. Um, for me, I was actually pretty fortunate because I had met this man who owned this restaurant. And occasionally, when the restaurant closed, he'd give me some food. Um, I'd eat a little bit of it and then walk several miles back to the village to give some to my little brother, um, who I was caring for at the time. And um, I wasn't always lucky. Like I said, it was occasionally. And so there were times when um, the older street kids would allow me to sniff their glue. And I kind of just took away the pain of being hungry, the, some of the pains of the streets. And I remember what it really made me feel was that, hey, everything's okay, and that the streets maybe aren't that hard. Derek, how old would you say you were at this time? I was like four and a half, five, yeah. Yeah. So four and a half, five-year-old, you have to make the decision to leave to the streets in order to survive, and you're in charge of getting food back to your younger brother. Yeah. Wow. Um, what, what's your hope? What's your hope for the kids that are currently living on the streets in Catale? My hope for the kids living in Catale is that they might find a family. I um. When I left for the streets, I had this vision that, you know, streets would be good, but it wasn't. I didn't have a hope. I didn't have a future on the streets. And um, actually, when I lived on the streets, I met this uh, friend named John. And John was older than me, and so he kind of protected me on the streets. And um, I remember actually, like, right bef before I got adopted, as they were finalizing the adoption, John was at an orphanage with me, and John ended up running away. And so um, just kind of John had been all over the place, couldn't really stay in one place. But um, fast forward 2014, and I get to go back to Kenya for the first time, which was such a good trip. It was so cool. And I get there, and I find John. And John is so worn out. Um, the streets have just kind of taken a toll on him. And you could see that he was just not in a good place. And then last year, my parents, they took a trip back to Kenya with the people here, and um, they came back and they told me, hey, Derek, John's dead. And that just broke my heart, and I was just so crushed, and realizing that John didn't have anyone to care for him. He didn't have a family, and I mean, if I look at my life and John's life, the biggest thing separating us was the family. And so I guess for me, my hope is that we may give them right. a family we might give them that kind of love that God intended for all his children. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, Derek, thank you for sharing with us today. Hey, can we thank Derek? Appreciate you, man. What I'd love to do is just ask a quick question, a little survey. If you, have, uh, if you have a child who's around that four, five, six-year-old, or if you have a grandchild, if you have a nephew or a niece, maybe if you have a, a, a neighbor friend or just somebody that, that you know in your life that's between that four-year-old, six-year-old uh, age frame, could you just raise your hand right now? Let's just see that number. of, Yeah. So could you imagine that child living on the street, being beaten in the morning if they're sleeping in the wrong spot, begging for food, and if they happen to be lucky enough to get food, having to carry that food miles home to care for a younger sibling. 
It, it, it's just, it's, it's so, it's just mind-boggling for us to think that that is, that, that's a, a life. And, and I do want to brag on Derek for just a moment. I, I hope you could see it, but Derek is, he, he loves Jesus, and his heart is, is for the Lord. He's got so much potential. He's going to make such a huge impact for, for the Lord. In fact, I, I just will share this with you. It's just so cool for me to think about. But for years, what, what he's been doing is he's been downloading, like, uh, messages, you know, sermons. And, and then he's been, like, giving those sermons in his bedroom every night before bed, you know. And his family's like, oh, yeah, Derek's preaching again. He's just kind of practicing again and again. And, and I just I have no idea how big of an impact Derek's going to make for the kingdom of God. But I want you to know that, that all of this potential that God has put in Derek's life, he's put in each and every one of those kids living on the streets of Katali. And the reason why Derek is living this life that he's living, it's, it, it's a wonderful thing that God has, has done what he's done, and he's kind of woven into the story that the, the loving Hamer family adopted Derek and his younger brother. But but I want you to see that the, the victory is not in the fact that it was the Hamers. The victory is in the fact that it was a family. It's, it, it's, he has this life that has now all of this potential. And it's not because he is in a first world family. It's because he was invited into a loving family, into a loving home. And friends, that is at the heart of the Katali Project. See, the idea is we want to do exactly what it is that God is all about. God's plan has always been for the development and care for children to be in families, in the context of loving homes. So you can see in, um, in the scripture in Psalm 68, 6, God places the lonely in families. And so the heart of this project is simply to come alongside what God's vision has always been. And so what we're doing is inviting street kids off of the streets and into a safe place. It's, it is a place where it, they'll be able to have a safe bed to sleep in, where they'll get good nourishment and nutrition, where they're, they're, they'll be you know, bathed and clothed and, and then rehabilitated, right? There's some education that will happen over the course of about 60 to 90 days to prepare them for what life in a family is like. What are the expectations going to be? How, how do they need to act? What are some behaviors they'll need to embrace in order to make family life work well for them? And then during that rehabilitation time, when they're you know, being taken care of, there are Kenyan social workers that are connecting with extended family members, aunties and uncles, with grandmas and grandpas, going back into the village of origin of these children and finding a safe and loving family to place these children back into that home. So it's this beautiful picture, and we actually have partners on the ground. We've seen this paradigm work. It's been highly effective in a neighboring city. And now what we're doing is bringing this program into Katali, Kenya. So that's the vision that God has given to us. So here's my challenge. And again, it's this beginning challenge. We're right at the front end of this journey. But it's that you and I, we would all take an action step. And the action step that, that I'm challenging us to take is the step of discovery. That there, there is, um, I, I know that as I talk about this, there are questions. I know that as I talk about this, there's all sorts of, well, yeah, what about, and how's this going to happen, and who does what, and what does this look like, and, and I think that's wonderful. 
there are answers to all of those questions. Let me tell you what the path of least resistance is, though. The path of least resistance is apathy. Some of you are just like, oh, I'm, just, I'm not that interested. I got something else going on in my life. And, and, and that's the path of least resistance. Let me encourage you to resist that path. That this would be, one, instead of the path of least resistance, let's take the road less traveled. Right, let's step into this idea of, no, I'll get answers to these questions. I'll figure out what's going on so that I can allow my heart to have the same kind of ache that Jesus has for these children. And if you missed last week or you know, somehow you, you didn't get a chance to swing by the exhibit in the hallway, please do that today. You'll notice that right in the middle are a bunch of magnets. And I know many, actually hundreds of you took magnets home last week. Please, if you didn't get one, feel free to take one today. But those magnets have names on them. Those are the names of the actual kids living on the streets today. We've recently done a census. We know their names. We know exactly how many are living on the streets in Katali right now. Take a magnet, put it on your refrigerator, and begin to pray over that child. Begin to pray over the potential of that child. You've met Derek, a 19-year-old example of what that child on the streets can be like if they have the ability to get into a loving family. Let's provide that for them, okay? Now, friends, what I want to do is I want to close our time together, and I want to talk about this idea of action, how the vision of God and the call of God leads us to action. And I just want us to end our time focusing on the person of Jesus, because he took action for us. His heart was a heart that was filled with compassion. The Bible says he looked and he saw, and the people were lost like sheep without a shepherd, and his heart was filled with compassion. And that's what drove him to act. That's the reason why he left heaven in the first place, why he came and, and he chose to live a life of poverty, to live a very simple life and a very pure life. He chose to, to, to everything that he taught, every, every time that he taught, what he was doing was showing us, right, taking action so that we would understand what full life looks like what rich life looks like, what deep life looks like. When you think about the crucifixion, when you think about the death that he chose to die, the recognition was it's because he was taking action for salvation so that we could have forgiveness of our sins, so that we could live in grace under the gracious and favored hand of our Heavenly Father for the rest of our lives and for eternity. Amen. Everything Jesus did, he was taking action for us on our behalf. Amen. And so what I want to do is I just want to give you an opportunity. If you have never said yes to the action that he's taken for you, if you've never said yes for the grace that he offers you, for the gift of salvation that he extends to you, the invitation to be in relationship with, with him now and, and forever, I, I would love to encourage you to, to take that action step today. That's where this all starts. Friends, I think it's wonderful to have a vision from God and to respond to a call from God and to, to make some kind of a commitment to do things for other people. That's exactly what I think the church is all about. But it all starts here. It all starts recognizing who Jesus is and how we receive his life and then share his life with others. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray together. Jesus, I want to thank you for the way in which 
you model all of this for us. The, the way in which you choose not to remain distant, you choose not to remain in a place where, where you have all your comfort, where, where, where you, know, you don't need to be bothered, and, and you just look down and you just see the suffering of others, and by that, too bad. I'm so glad that's not your heart. I'm so glad your heart is moved with compassion and, and your compassion and, and, and that vision is what compels you to action. And Jesus, I'm just so thankful that I'm the recipient of your grace, of, of your love, of, of your move on my behalf. Lord, right now, what I want to ask is that you would allow all of us to very clearly sense your arms of love wrapped around us to very clearly sense your whisper of love, your invitation of love. And Jesus, I just pray that, that every one of us would say yes to you, either for the first time or again today. That we would say yes, we receive that today, Jesus. Yes, we, we want to, to experience more of your presence in our life and more of your love and grace over us. And, and then show us what it looks like to live your life for others. Lord, when it comes to the Katali Project, we just lift it up to you. We know that it has the ability to transform hundreds and hundreds of lives, to see potential grow literally in hundreds of hearts, potential that you have already invested. So Lord Jesus, just show us what it looks like for us to participate in the vision that you're stirring. Just like Nehemiah had a vision for a faraway city, Lord Jesus, we have a vision for a faraway city. We ask that you would be a part of driving all of this to action in a way that brings you honor and glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.